Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salver with the American Journal of Managed Care, and I'm doing my monthly podcast. And we're going to do something a little bit different um, this this podcast because we're going to talk about money, and we're not going to talk about money in the sense of uh, who pays for. Uh, healthcare like insurance companies, we're going to talk about issues of money that relate directly to the impact of illness on patients. Uh, I'm very excited to have with me today Veena Shankaran, who's a physician and an associate professor of the Division of Medical Oncology at the University of Washington. And she's also an associate member of the Clinical Research Division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And she's done a really uh, interesting study and has um, written it up and gotten it published. And uh, her paper actually was one of the winners of the 2016 PAN Foundation Challenge that was sponsored both by the PAN Foundation and the American Journal of Managed Care and focused on identifying papers that could describe sustainable strategies to help people access critical medications to treat life-threatening chronic and rare diseases. And this paper uh, certainly does address that because um, we're going to talk about the financial toxicity of cancer. So Vina, you had that uh, phrase, financial toxicity of cancer, in your paper. Uh, what do you mean by that? And can you give us some uh, specific examples? Yeah, certainly. Um, so financial toxicity, I think, is a term that caught on a few years ago um, in the oncology community specifically. And it really, I guess I would say that it doesn't have a specific, very specific meaning, but it, it really is meant to encompass um, a lot of different financial changes or hardships that patients with cancer experience. And so, um, so it's sort of a broad term for a variety of um, experiences that patients and families go through. So some examples might include high out-of-pocket spending um, on cancer drugs or tests. And then another meaning might be loss of income or, or work following cancer diagnosis, so more of the indirect costs of cancer diagnosis and care. And if we take the high out-of-pocket spending to the next level, um, patients often go into debt or deplete savings to pay for cancer care um, and sometimes experience um, significant debt that leads them to file for bankruptcy. Um, and there were there have been some um, papers on this topic of cancer-related bankruptcy. So, um, so financial toxicity encompasses all of these hardships and, and changes. And then um, not only really does the term encompass the f objective measures of financial distress, but also this idea that um, the financial impact of cancer care can be more subjective and more um, not necessarily correlated with actual financial resources. So stress about how, how a patient or family is going to pay for cancer care, um, worry that they don't really know what the costs are going to be in advance. Um, and there have been some tools that have developed to measure this more subjective financial toxicity. Well, I thought it was very interesting when I <clears throat> read about these different financial hardships that it isn't just during the period of time when the cancer patient's undergoing care, which of course is already so stressful from 
you know, the, the, the physical challenges and the mental challenges of having a condition that could, uh, you know, perhaps not be treated and ended up, and they end up being fatal. Um, but that people who, um, you know, go through the cancer care and experience these uh, losing their job or um, having very high out of pocket, uh, particularly for those uh, really extensive life saving drugs that we now have for cancer. But in addition, they start dipping into their savings, they start using their um, retirement accounts, they're not able to contribute to their uh, retirement accounts. And so in a sense, it's not just becoming a, a cancer survivor, but when you come out on the, on the other end of all of this, you really are in a completely different financial situation than, than you were before you had the cancer. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're starting to understand this is a very, it's not a short-term problem, it's a long-term problem. And um, it's really a survivorship issue. Um, and we need to think about it that way. Uh, I've heard so many stories from patients during the context of this study and others um, describing uh, this impact on their career trajectory um, or what they imagined their career would be. And, um, and that's so subtle, you know, that's really hard to quantify in terms of a financial outcome. So maybe their income didn't change substantially, but what they imagine their life to be like in many ways is, um, is uh, it's, it's very far reaching. Well, it's great that you're starting to look into this. I, I, I can't recall that this was even talked about when I was in clinical practice. Um, so tell us about your study and um, how you hope to impact this problem with the work that you're doing. So I've been thinking about this problem for, I would say, nine or 10 years, maybe before the term financial toxicity got um, came into vogue, I guess I should say. And so done a lot of studies over the years, really trying to describe the problem of financial hardship, understand it, measure it, really primarily retrospectively. And I think at this point in time, in 2017, we understand that it's a problem. We know that patients uh, with cancer are experiencing financial hardship to a greater extent than patients without cancer. We know they file for bankruptcy at higher rates than individuals without cancer. So all of these studies are really um, highlighting the problem in oncology. But what we really um, struggle with is how we're gonna improve this problem, how we're gonna intervene. And that's really something I've become lately passionate about what can we do to help our patients at the, you know, at the patient level, but also the clinic practice level, and even at the policy level um, to mitigate financial burden. And the study that's, um, that's published in AGMC really focused on the patient side with the idea that um, really, you know, and we've learned this through other studies as well, that patients know very little about the financial aspects of their care have no um, knowledge of, um, of costs uh, of their care in advance of going through the process. Um, and, um, and there's really no infrastructure within clinics to help guide patients through this, these aspects. And so um, we have partnered with a few organizations in Seattle and, and elsewhere to really try and develop a program to help educate and navigate patients through the financial aspects of their care. And so this paper was really trying to understand from patients what issues are important to them before we just went ahead and made a navigation program. You know, what did they want to learn about? What are the gaps in knowledge? What can we provide um, to help them 
feel more confident and secure and um, empowered to deal with the financial aspects of care. What did you find? What areas did they identify as the areas that they needed to learn the most about or, or needed to get more information on? Yeah, I think the major the major issues were, um, you know, we heard that we heard that the impact on employment was significant. So people wanted to know what their employment rights are, what is the impact on their income, and how are they going to budget in, in the face of a, um, a gap in their income and work. Um, they wanted to know how to navigate insurance plans, how to know what is in network versus out of network care, how to interpret medical bills, those pesky things that come in the mail called EOVs or explanation of benefits. People had no idea what those were and why they kept coming. So things like that. What what are they actually responsible to pay? And then uh, a, a third theme um, that really came up is how to bridge this wasn't maybe um, something that patients requested, but something that we discovered in the context of these interviews that was important is how to bridge this gap between um, patients and physicians um, or health, other healthcare providers and how to talk about cancer care costs. Because there seemed to be a lot of barriers to even broaching the subject. And so uh, do they bring up the issue of how do you even plan for this? It's one thing you can plan for how much money you're losing when you have to leave the workforce because you know what your salary is. Um, and you can maybe start to get somewhere on how much the insurance company is going to pay versus what you're going to pay. But the nature of cancer care is that the disease is so unpredictable. Uh, so unlike an elective surgery where you could come to me and I could say, well, you know, we're going to do a hip replacement and it's going to cost you $25,000. Um, and you can plan for that. With cancer care, how do you even start to get your arms around what the short-term, medium-term, and long-term costs of the care itself are going to be? So I would say that's a huge challenge. I mean, and even taking one step back, nobody plans for, I guess, unless you're talking to someone who really is imagining all the worst-case scenarios, most people are not budgeting or planning for a major health shock like cancer in their life. You know, we plan for retirement, we save for, you know, our, our roof gets hit in a storm and, and we have to fix it. So you, you have, you know, a little, you have some money set aside for those kinds of things. People plan for their children's um, college education, but not as many people plan for a major health condition like um, cancer. So that's, I guess, the um, starting point. And then you, you get diagnosed with cancer and then there's this whole, cloud around what those costs are going to be. So there's very little transparency in healthcare in general um, about what services cost. There have been a number of articles written on this topic. And so exactly to your points, people don't know how much they're going to spend on a, on a surgery or a diagnostic test or a medication. And in the case of oral uh, cancer medications, most people don't know how much they're going to spend until they show up at the pharmacy window and they're uh, quoted a price. So this is one um, one aspect that we're trying to tackle in our financial navigation program that we're now pilot testing and it's it's up and running, um, which is can we get estimates from uh, from the healthcare system or the payer about what patients can expect to pay, and it, it's a challenge. I mean, what we've at least set out to do is provide people with um, 
information about their out-of-pocket max, deductibles, that, that type of information that anyone can actually access, but most people don't know offhand. But, um, but at least that's a starting point for, this is how much you're responsible out-of-pocket um, in an entire year. Now, there are some things that don't count towards that out-of-pocket limit, but that gives people a rough sense of what they might be expected to pay. And we start there and work uh, budget from that um, starting point. The other piece that's often really frustrating is when those costs are going to be um, experienced over the course of the year. It's usually not an even, it's almost never evenly distributed throughout the year. There's a big bolus of spending usually from starting in January when the, you know, when the health plan year starts through, for many of our patients, even the first, you know, three to four months, they're spending a lot towards the deductible and out-of-pocket limit, and then the costs sort of drop after that point. But yeah, I agree, it's a black box, if you will. Well, before we talk about the nitty-gritty of how you're actually going to structure or how you have already started to structure this navigation course, um, one of the things that was really interesting to me in the paper was the uh, patient's response to the question about what the role of physicians is, their doctors in addressing this, these issues. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we were overall surprised by some of the feedback that, that many patients were, um, you know, it ranged from um, embarrassment about discussing costs with their doctor to not wanting to burden doctors with this kind of information um, to really being fearful about uh, not getting um, the standard of care or the best care um, because of uh, their inability to pay. You know, patients were worried about um, exposing themselves as someone who couldn't afford care and therefore getting a recommendation that was subpar. And so, you know, I think that most physicians would not take this information um, and you know, recommend subpar care. I don't think that's, I think many of the concerns are not, you know, are not actually happening, but it is a concern that needs to be addressed. So part of our goal is to allay some of these fears that really prevent patients from getting help and seeking counseling about finances early on in their care. Well, it's interesting because I, I know you didn't, uh, physician, interviewing physicians wasn't a part of the study, but I would suspect, and you can tell me as a physician if you agree with me, that physicians would have a lot of concerns also because, first of all, they don't have enough time to spend with the patient anyway. So if part of their time where they want to talk about clinical issues is now um, devoted to talking about the financial issues, not that they aren't important, but it, it, would, it could impact on the, on the clinical conversation. And then the other thing would be whether physicians actually could answer these questions. I mean, how many docs themselves are, are financially illiterate about the cost of care? Yeah, definitely. I just don't think that physicians have the time or expertise necessarily. But what, what is critical, um, and, you know, ASCO's done a good job in putting this message out to physicians, is that we need to at least acknowledge that it's a problem. And we need to match patients up with people who can help, even if we don't have, as physicians, don't have the expertise or knowledge to really address all these issues. If no one talks about it, you know, there's never going to be a solution. So, so really, it's more, I think the physician's role is more in acknowledgement and referral. And maybe to some extent, there is some role as physicians to help look at alternative treatments that are similarly effective but cost less. 
Um, but that's really not something that's within the scope of this navigation program we're working on. So I, I, I am uh, wondering about this issue of physicians perhaps not getting into the nitty gritty of the financial concerns, but at least opening the door so that patients would feel comfortable, comfortable um, asking about, well, for example, could I get the CT scan you know, every five months instead of every four months? Or um, being able to talk to them directly about the implications of them on their own not taking all of their medications. And we know this happens in healthcare because of the healthcare costs being so high in this country that people are splitting pills, skipping doses, skipping certain kinds of treatments. Um, it does seem to me, and maybe this is a part of the work that you do in the future, Zena, that, um, that being able to engage doctors in, in understanding what's going on in people's real life with respect to these financial issues or something that they, that they ought to be present a, an openness so patients could bring them up um, if they wanted to. Yes, absolutely. I think this is part and parcel of any navigation program, but it would be impossible without, you know, the backup from the other side of, okay, these are your finances. These are what resources we have. These are the pharmaceutical uh, or foundation assistance programs that we can match you up with so that you can get the medication that you're saying that you can't afford. Because I think a lot of the issues are not really switching always to less expensive therapy, but knowing what's available to assist with the current recommended treatment. And so uh, tell us briefly, what's in your course? How are you conducting it? Is it in person? Is it online? Um, is it group? Is it individual? How are you conveying the information and helping patients to get what they need in, in, in this realm? So uh, we've been working with a really wonderful organization here in Seattle called SENSE. It uh, stands for Consumer Education and Training Services. They're a financial literacy organization. They interface with a variety of groups in the Seattle area, from prisoners to individuals facing personal bankruptcy to kids taking out student loans and so on. And so they're really coming at this uh, issue from a financial literacy standpoint um, not really tethered to any healthcare issue. And so we started working with them on, on this uh, course, and they really developed a, an hour-long course on every single aspect you could think of related to the finances of cancer, from insurance to employment rights to patient assistance programs to how to communicate with your oncology care team and so on. And the feedback we got from the, from the initial interviews was to give this course live uh, in a group because people wanted that, uh, the sharing of ideas and that camaraderie with other, other patients. And so we actually started off the program that way where we had three to five patients and their caregivers at a live um, class with the SENSE group and with a few investigators from our group. The, these classes were really great. Uh, and I think there was a lot of interchange of ideas between the participants. The problem was that it was really hard to orchestrate. We ended up switching the format to a video that they could watch from home. Um, and actually, once we did that, the participation went up pretty significantly. So I think that um, you have to have some trade-offs. And with all of the other logistics that people have to go through and, and treatment side effects and so on, watching a video at home seemed to be the most doable. And so once people watch this video, then we have them meet with a financial counselor, a, a certified financial planner or a lawyer who's specialized in this. 
um, and then with um, representatives from the Patient Advocate Foundation, which is an organization that does a lot of financial navigation for people with any diseases, not any disease, not just cancer. And so these connections were made and PAF and Sense um, connected with patients on a monthly basis um, over a six month period to address any need that came up. And how many people have uh, taken your course so far? So we had 34 patients um, initially consent, and then um, we had approximately 20 go through the entire program. So there was a lot of dropout initially with the live course, but yeah, 20 patients so far. And have you um, gotten any feedback from them about, how, it sounds like it's pretty early, so you may not have all of this information, but um, have they felt like it, it helped them? And do you have plans to do a follow-up study where you can um, evaluate the effectiveness of your program in a, in a systematic way? Um, as a researcher, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that would be something you'd be interested in. Yeah, and so we've started to do that already. Uh, we There was a lot of satisfaction with the program. There was actually a substantial percentage of patients who reported high financial anxiety at the beginning that decreased over time as they participated in the program. We've quantified all of the assistance that was received um, by patients from PAF, and we've documented all of the um, guidance that the SENSE counselors gave to patients. And so I think there was a, a lot of benefit that you know the patients um, reported. Our next study is going to involve patients with um, any cancer at any stage. So our first study limited to people with early stage cancers. So now we really want to expand this because I think there are some different counseling um, approaches you might take for a patient with early stage disease who is expected to be cured versus someone with limited prognosis who has to think about issues related to their spouses and families' um, financial standing after they pass away. So we're trying to approach that issue. Um, we are trying to systematically evaluate how much assistance is provided, um, patients' um, uh, feedback on the program, um, and uh, we're including, um, we're specifically including caregivers, um, really to understand the impact on them as well, because usually household finances are all connected between patients and caregivers. So I think this is really wonderful. It, 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 it sounds like it's clearly meeting a need that hasn't been uh, thoroughly addressed in the past. Um, any thoughts about how you can make this more widely available and not, uh, not just something that's uh, terrific for people who are getting care in your home institution? Yeah, I think that's, that's part of the challenge is how do we get, if we can prove this works, how do we get other cancer centers in other states? How do we mobilize people to, to offer this kind of service? So I think it's up to us to prove that it really does improve specific outcomes for patients and that there could be a benefit to cancer centers as well in terms of people um, staying on course with treatment, following up with surveillance care, um, that there might be a benefit in terms of the institution's financial endpoints if you know, there's assistance that's received for certain drugs that otherwise would have been written off by the institution. So I think that this kind of program, I mean, ultimately our goal is to help patients, but I think it has potential to help institutions um, as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I always like to <clears throat> ask a little bit about the finances of the program itself. Um, how, how have you been able to fund your work 
and in thinking about how you could make this go national, um, it, it, any thoughts about uh, potential funders? Just tell us a little bit about how you funded it so far and any thoughts about funding it in the future. Yeah, so um, we have pulled together some various sources of funding to support this, but primarily the, the work was funded by the Safeway Foundation via our cancer center. So that's one source. And then SENSE itself is looking into um, some sources of funding to work on materials, educational materials that can be used for our um, combined projects through organizations that deal with financial planning. So not something that investigators and clinicians would necessarily have access to or apply for. Um, and then our hope is to um, secure funding from, uh, we're, we're applying for an NIH grant um, to support a larger study. Um, but I do think that there's um, potentially a role for, for pharma to support something like this. Um, there are a lot of stakeholders in this kind of work, I think. They are for sure. So I really want to thank you, Gina, for joining us and telling us about this uh, fascinating research that you're doing in an area that I think a lot of people aren't that familiar with and for concentrating your efforts on, on relieving the financial toxicity of cancer. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it.